Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of The Killer Kind. I hope you're all doing well. I know I say that every episode, but with the state of the world, you can only hope and pray for the best, right? But I won't dwell on that. However, (laughs) we can dwell on today's case because, boy, let me tell you, is it frustrating, confusing, and then frustrating again. (laughs) So I apologize in advance, um, but just know that we'll have the exact same feelings at the end of the episode today, I'm sure. So just head over to the podcast Instagram. Let me be your therapist. We'll talk through it. DM me, message me, whatever, comment. We'll go back and forth because it is frustrating and annoying. (laughs) But anyways, we have a lot to unpack here. So I'm not going to I'm not going to even do that much of an intro here. Um, as you can tell, I'm already starting to dive in. So let's go ahead and jump into the disappearance of Kimberly Raymer. Kimberly Raymer was 17 years old on August 15th, 1997, when she went missing from her home in Op, Alabama. I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with Op, Alabama, and I'm not too familiar with it myself personally, but... I used to drive through that little town every year when I was little going to the beach with my grandparents. And all I remember is how my granddad says he always wanted to live there. It really is just an adorable little town. It's got little historical looking homes, a town hall, a few like gas stations and a grocery store. Really not much to it, but it's it's super cute. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Um, And I think you have to be from the South to really appreciate little towns like that. But anyways, at the time of her disappearance, Kimberly was living with her dad, Kenny. Her mother, Sue, lived on the Alabama-Florida state line. Pretty sure she lived on the Florida side, though. And the two were divorced. Now, it's my understanding that her parents had only recently split up at the time, and she had chose to live with her dad, along with her older sister, because He was the one staying in op where she had grown up and where she was attending high school. So I'm sure she just didn't want to leave her friends and and anybody that she knew. But from what I understand, she just went back and forth to see and spend time with her mom when she could. So they had a good relationship. And back to the town briefly, op only had a population of about 7,000 and it still does. So there's it's a very, very small town. Everybody knows everybody, you know, you know, the kind of place I'm talking about and Nothing ever really happened there until Kimberly went missing. At the time of her disappearance, Kimberly had just turned 17 years old and was just a few days away from starting her senior year of high school. And she was really a very normal teenager. She played softball. She was a cheerleader. She had pretty good grades. She had friends, never really had a boyfriend, wasn't too popular, but she just lived a normal life, you know, nothing too crazy. She didn't have any known enemies and she seemed to really just get along with everyone. She did have plans to go to college at the University of South Alabama, where she planned to become a physical therapist. But unfortunately, Kimberly never got to achieve her dreams. To this day, nobody knows what happened and there are no answers. But don't worry, there's a lot to unpack here. So first off, let's start with the week that Kimberly went missing. So it's my understanding that she had been staying with her mom in Florida pretty much for the whole summer break, I'm sure. 
and she had gone back to her home in op with her dad because the school year was getting ready to start and she wanted to get some things in order before her senior year. Now, the day she goes missing, Kimberly woke up about the time she normally did, but on this particular morning, she had to get ready to go take her senior pictures. From there, she went to hang out with some friends for a little bit, but then she had a softball game that afternoon. It was after her softball game that she went home to take a shower and to get ready for a night out with friends, since this was their last weekend before school started back, completely normal. Now, after she gets home, take a shower and get ready to go out, she sees her dad. Her dad's at the house as well. And he is also getting ready to go hang out um, with his girlfriend of the time. So the two interact before Kimberly leaves. And her dad just reminds her to be home by her curfew, which is 1130. Both of them end up leaving around the same time, which is about 10 p.m. that night. So I guess she just planned on hanging out with friends for a little while since that wasn't a huge amount of time 10 to eleven thirty, but her dad said that she was not one to break curfew or anything she was a pretty good kid so he trusted her with you know her responsibility of being home by eleven thirty. now kenny kimberly's dad decides that he would stay the night at his girlfriend's house it's unclear here if he ever called the house to see if kimberly made it home um, by her curfew or not Now, let me stop and say that the timeline in this whole case is not clear, which is why you hear me explaining, like, I don't really know what happened. This is my understanding. This is based on, like, other people's research and other people's, like, deep dives because there is not a lot of information here on this case. There's more on the investigation than there is even the week before that she goes missing. Like, it's like, Nobody has information. Nobody knows what what happened. The timeline's unclear. It's all just a little foggy. So that's why I say this case is frustrating, to say the least, because you just can't, like, how is there so little information? But bear with me. Like I said, this was the 90s, though, to remind everyone. It's not like they had their iPhone in their hands at all times. So it's not like, you know, oh, I'm walking out the door. I'm looking at my phone. It's exactly 10.06. You know, like, you you know, it's not going to be like that in this case. So, Luckily, we have that today, so it's a little easier in situations like this, but either way. So anyways, it's unclear if there was any communication between Kimberly and her dad after the two left the house around 10 p.m. Now, cut to that Saturday morning. So Kenny leaves his girlfriend's house and is going to go play golf. There's not a time noted here for this, but I know that golfers typically like to go pretty early in the morning, especially during the summer, in order to go when it's as cool as possible. So Kenny heads to his house to pick up his golf clubs. When he arrives, he does see Kimberly's car in the driveway, and I'm sure he assumes she's asleep or she was supposed to go sell magazines with some friends that day. Oh, the 90s. You gotta love it. So depending on the time of day, he could have assumed she was already gone with friends and that she had just rode with one of them or she was still asleep. So, he goes in the house, leaves a note for Kimberly, I'm assuming saying, hey, I'm going to play golf, I'll be back in a little bit. He grabs his golf clubs, and he leaves. Now, this is also where it gets even more frustrating. The lack of information here makes me crazy, but bear with me. So, we know that Kenny went golfing that Saturday morning. We're assuming early morning. 
And it's apparent that he didn't get home until later that night. Why? Who knows? Did he go hang out with his girlfriend again? Literally no information here. Now, Kimberly's mom, Sue. Sue had been out fishing in Florida with her boyfriend, and apparently she didn't get done until around 1 to 2 a.m. on that Sunday morning. What do these people do? I I can't. I can't be gone for that long during the day. <laughs> I mean, who was gone that much? I guess I'm I'm used to COVID. Maybe I don't remember the days that I actually had stuff going on. <laughs> um, but anyways, Sue had a missed call from Kenny when she checked her phone when they got done fishing. Like I said, around 1 to 2 a.m. early, early Sunday morning. And when she tried to call Kenny back, he didn't answer. So she assumed it wasn't urgent and she ends up going home and going to sleep. Now, at some point that Sunday morning, Sue woke up to another call from Kenny. He was asking if Kimberly had come to her house. And she said, no, I haven't seen her or talked to her. What do you mean? So Sue decides to go to Kenny's house to see where she might could be, just to kind of get together and, and figure out a plan, like to figure out where she's at. When she gets there, she sees that her car is still in the driveway. So that's a little odd. You know, where could she be if her car is there? But Kenny says that he had been calling some of Kimberly's friends looking for her. And several of them were actually at Kenny's house when Sue arrived. Now, the strange part here is they were all in agreement, saying that it was Kimberly's boyfriend that has her, quote unquote. Or he has her and won't let her go. He took her, you know, something like that. And you're like, what? Stephanie, I thought you said she didn't have a boyfriend. Well, guys, I did. (laughs) And that was the assumption of everyone in her family, including both of her parents. But apparently that's not the case. Well, apparently Kimberly had been keeping her boyfriend a secret from her family. She had met him at one of her softball games and he was in his early 20s. So obviously much older than her and we can all assume that her parents would not have approved. And to make it worse, he had been married once already and had either one or two children. I can't confirm the count there. So this guy had no business being with a 17-year-old and vice versa. Now, the two had been in a relationship for just only two weeks. So so giving her a break a little bit. She, ha- she didn't have much time, you know, to keep it a secret. Um, I'm assuming the friends told the parents where this guy lived because they straight up went to his house. They went looking for him. And it was only about five minutes down the road, literally just a few blocks away. However, when they got there, there was no one there. So Kenny and Sue went ahead and filed a police report. This was around 9 a.m. on Sunday the 17th. Now, we all know the first 48 hours after a person goes missing is the most crucial time when someone disappears. I mean, the most crucial. And for a whole 24 hours, no one had even known Kimberly was missing. After the police report was filed, though, Kimberly's parents, her sister, and her sister's boyfriend, Jeremy, all began searching for Kimberly. They went back to Kenny's house and decided to check her room and look around the house to see if they noticed anything that might give them a clue as to where she is or maybe a timeline um, of that Friday night. So, when looking in her room, they decided that it appeared Kimberly had started getting ready for bed. Her purse, keys, and wallet were all inside her room. 
she had already taken out her contacts, which they said she was practically blind without them. And all of her shoes were accounted for, which meant that if she left for any reason, she was barefoot, couldn't see, (laughs) and had none of her personal belongings. Now, one of the most concerning things about the state of her room was that there were some pictures that had been knocked sideways and some that had been knocked off the wall completely. And her bed was a mess, indicating some sort of struggle occurred on the bed as well. And needless to say, some sort of struggle occurred here. And I would go as far as to say it's pretty obvious that she was taken against her will. I mean, that would have been my first thought, but I have a true crime podcast, so that could be why. (laughs) The fact that she took no shoes and didn't even have her contacts so she could see pretty much tells me all I need to know. But let's move on to the investigation. This poor op police department, this was definitely a first for them. I would say they worked hard on the case, but I think they just didn't know how to fully handle the situation. Because once the town got wind of Kimberly's disappearance, the whole town started showing up to the house. It's not clear if anyone went inside Kimberly's room, but there were just several people in and out of the home. So any evidence in the home was probably destroyed. And oddly, Kimberly's sister's boyfriend... Jeremy Anderson said while they were all looking in Kimberly's room that he did touch some stuff, just moving things around and um, looking, just looking around, you know, just kind of looking up and under stuff, you know, that kind of thing. But Sue did say that she told him multiple times to stop touching stuff because she knew if anything was touched, it would be contaminated and potential evidence could be lost. And when police investigated the home, they did determine that there was no sign of forced entry, indicating that no one had actually broken into the home. And other than her room, there was no sign of a struggle anywhere else in the home. And police wouldn't even fully say that there was an actual struggle in her room, just that there was possible small struggle. Strange, but understandable here. Yeah, some things are a little messed up, some things are knocked over, but... It's a teenage girl's room. Can you fully say? You know, I don't know. The family obviously did, but I get the police department here. Now, obviously none of this just made sense, though. None of it made sense. She's gone. She's missing. There's not a huge sign of a struggle here, but there's obviously some big red flags. Now, I will take a moment to say that at some point, Kenny and Sue noticed that the door that was primarily used to enter and exit the home was slightly ajar. And I don't mean that it was the door was open, And I'll try to describe it the best way I can. The lock was intact. Nothing on the door had appeared to be broken. But when... But when looking at the door while it was closed, quote-unquote, there appeared to be light coming through the top half of the door. So, like, the lock up. Basically, they had the theory that somebody had tried forcing the door open. Almost like the top half of the door was bent a little causing a little light to come through even when it was shut. Now, I'll say nobody could remember if that had always been like that or not. It's possible, but nobody could say for sure. Either way, police still determined that was not a sign of forced entry. From what I understand, investigators went on to search the home for any forensic evidence, and there was just nothing. No trace of blood, no true sign of physical harm, 
So after a few days, police decided to contact the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, the ABI. Now, in several of the cases I've covered, I've mentioned a state's Bureau of Investigation. You know, Georgia, GBI, Tennessee, TBI. Each state has one of these. Each state in the U.S. has its, its like state version of the FBI. These investigators cover both criminal and civil cases involving the state and or multiple jurisdictions. Basically, in my opinion, they're called in when the local investigators need more help or come up empty in an investigation and need new and maybe more experienced eyes on big cases like this. I will say, too, that the FBI did get involved pretty soon after the investigation as well. And I'm sorry, but nobody really knows why. I mean, this normally wouldn't be a case for the FBI. But one theory is that the state and local investigators thought if someone took her, they could have crossed into Florida. Therefore, this would cover two states, and that could certainly pull the FBI in. But... There was no proof of her crossing state lines at any point. Then there was Jeremy Anderson. This was the boyfriend to Kimberly's sister, Kristen. Now, supposedly he called his dad, who is his dad, a detective in the Walton County area, which is in Florida. Now, again, supposedly Jeremy called his dad and told him that the FBI needed to get involved. Now, he could have just been trying to help and calling his dad and asking him to call the FBI just to get answers for this family and to get something done. And since his dad's a detective, you know, maybe he has a little more pull. So, that could be one theory. Nobody's really sure why he would have done this um, other than that reason. I'm I'm not saying I'm suspicious of this guy because of that, but I'm not saying that I'm not suspicious of him. We'll see. (laughs) I'm a little suspicious of a lot of people that I've already mentioned here. But either way, there ends up being three different groups of investigators all in this one case. But there are still no answers. This poor girl seemingly disappeared without a trace. But let's move on. So investigators start with the boyfriend, obviously, the secret boyfriend. Her friends had their suspicions about about him, obviously. He had been kept a secret from her family. He obviously had an ex-wife who could have maybe been mad about their relationship. I mean, she was 17. She could be jealous and, you know, we all know crazy girls. So, I mean, everything points to this guy right off the bat. So, police need to find him. And they do. They end up tracking him down and he gives his statement. He tells investigators that he and Kimberly did, in fact, hang out that night. They just hung out at his house, but then she left at 1130, right, at around her curfew. And that's the last time he's seen or heard from her. He apparently took a polygraph test, and I assume he had an alibi as well, even though I can't find anything that says what his alibi was. But basically, he was cleared, 100%. And after he was questioned and everything, he even became helpful in the investigation itself. He helped in searches conducted by the family. He sat down with Kimberly's parents and reiterated that he did not hurt their daughter, and he had no idea where she could have been so he seemed to be genuine and and concerned and, and had nothing to do with it so with their main suspect ruled out and seemingly nobody else they could look at or nobody else they could think of they decided to polygraph anyone close to Kimberly that included both her parents her sister 
and Jeremy, and I believe in some of her friends. Now, all but one of them took the polygraph with no hesitation. Who is that one, you ask? Mr. Jeremy Anderson, the boyfriend of the sister. So once again, the sister's boyfriend is looking more and more suspicious. Now, <laughs> I'll stop and say that is everyone's right to refuse a polygraph test. And a lot of times, lawyers will suggest that their clients not take a polygraph, guilty or not. And with Jeremy's dad being a detective, maybe he taught his son why you should never take a polygraph test because they could implement you even when you're not guilty. I mean, that's polygraph test is all about your nerves and all about your, you know, shakiness of your voice. I don't know. It, it's not hundred percent reliable. So sometimes it's suggested not to take it. However, this raised some obvious red flags to police and they decided to look closer at this Jeremy guy. First thing they find out is Jeremy has a criminal history and a pretty alarming one at that. The dude had a rap sheet two pages long, if not more. He had been involved in armed robberies, physical assaults. I mean, the list goes on. And what his history told police was that he is capable of being violent and has experience breaking into homes. So needless to say, he was the next person of interest. But try as they might, police could not connect Kimberly's disappearance to Jeremy. So police decided to look at the phone line at the home. To see if anyone called Kimberly that night. Maybe a friend called and wanted her to sneak out. Maybe she called someone to pick her up. Maybe she called 911 for some reason. Well, come to find out, there were calls made from the house at around 5.20 a.m. early that Saturday morning. So someone was in the home at 5.20 a.m. making phone calls, even though they couldn't confirm that it was Kimberly making those calls. So they gather the numbers dialed from the phone and tracked down who they belonged to. First, they were able to determine that there were three phone calls placed, all to an area about 10 to 15 minutes away from Kimberly's mom's house. But oddly enough, all the numbers were different, even though they had the same area code. However, none of the numbers dialed belonged to anyone. And maybe they belonged to someone, but it wasn't clear, or excuse me, it was clear it wasn't the right number. Meaning, it looked like the numbers were dialed, but no contact was ever made. Sue actually theorized that the caller was frantic and maybe trying to remember a number in that area, but couldn't. They had the area code right, and it's like they knew that, but they couldn't recall the rest of the numbers. Now, just where was the area the caller was trying to call to? Like I said, it was 10 to 15 minutes away from Kimberly's mom's house, but... Come to find out, the area the calls were going to just so happened to be where Jeremy Anderson was supposedly at the night she went missing. Yeah, Jeremy was supposedly at a party in this area that night. Mm-hmm. Hold that thought. <laughs> Let me tell you a little more about Jeremy. So Jeremy's brother has a child with Sue's sister-in-law. Stay with me. Now, obviously, that relationship did not last because now she was with Sue's brother. And long story short, that's how Jeremy met Kristen, Kimberly's sister. One thing to note is that Jeremy is about 10 years older than Kristen. I don't have an exact age for you, but I'm guessing he was about 26, 27, and Kristen was 18 years old. So, 
Both sisters seem to date older guys. But hey, whatever. Do you, ladies. So, let's recap this suspicious activity surrounding Jeremy, shall we? One, while looking around in Kimberly's room, he was touching everything. Even though Sue kept telling him not to in order to preserve any potential evidence. And I'm sure he's like, oh, I don't want to preserve any evidence. Okay, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. And one thing she says later is that he was kind of hovering over her and everyone in that room. Then there's his refusal to take a polygraph. Then the calls coming in from Kenny's house going to an area he was supposedly known to have been at that night. And then there was something that Sue mentions in an interview many years later after the disappearance. She says that just a few days after Kimberly goes missing, Jeremy said he needs to leave town. Yeah. Sue tells him, no, you can't do that. You're going to look guilty if you do. And she said that when she told him this, he gave her a look that just sent chills down her spine. She said... It was in that moment that she knew he was involved somehow. You know, mother's instinct or whatever you want to call it. She knew that he knew something. Now, after all of that suspicious behavior, police came to the conclusion that Jeremy was their first official suspect, obviously. And they told the parents. When Sue got the news, she, of course, had to tell Kristen. Now, at first, Kristen didn't want to hear it. Since Jeremy was now a suspect... They had to dig into his alibi. Originally, his friends gave him an alibi, saying he was at a party with them that Friday night. And then Sue and Kristen confirmed that they saw him between 7 and 8 a.m. on Saturday before Sue and them went fishing. But apparently, quickly, his alibi fell apart. The FBI hit his friends hard. And just like the little punks that they are, they crumbled. (laughs) Let this be a lesson. If you think your friends are going to lie to the FBI for you, they ain't. So, just know. Come to find out, Jeremy had only been at this party until 2 a.m. And then apparently his whereabouts were unknown until 7 a.m. Or between 7 and 8 when Sue and Kristen saw him. And when investigators confronted him with this information... He didn't have a good answer. He told a different story, and then that story changed. He said he went to a couple of different lakes, a couple of different locations, basically saying he was party hopping, even though his story kept changing. Now, one other piece of information police were able to gather was that Jeremy had borrowed a friend's truck that Friday night. For some reason, he didn't want to drive his own car. So, he parked his car at a friend's house. And borrowed a friend's truck. Now, cut to early Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m., about an hour or so after those calls came from Kimberly's house, Jeremy shows up at his friend's house and is flipping out. He says that he needs to get rid of this truck. He's asking his friend to follow him so he can go drop off this truck somewhere. And sure enough, the friend agrees, and he follows Jeremy to some random church parking lot not far from the house. And he drops off the car and just leaves it. Who knows why? It's from there that he goes straight to Sue's house, where he then saw Sue and Kristen between, again, 7 and 8 a.m. Now, there's a lot to unpack 
there. One, why did you need to borrow a friend's truck that night? Two, after an hour of those calls being made from the home, why are you showing up to a friend's home trying to ditch the truck you were driving? Sketch. Why didn't you just return the truck to your friend and go about your business? What did you even tell that friend? I mean, what was he thinking about his truck? It just didn't sit well with authorities, obviously. But unfortunately, by the time police found out about this truck, it had been a while, like a, several months, I think, um, after the disappearance, and the truck had been completely cleaned. Now, it's my understanding that police still tried to take as much evidence from the truck as possible. Sue later insinuated that police went to the car wash where the truck had been vacuumed out and even tried to gather evidence from there. I mean, they really did try hard, but they either didn't get anything from their efforts or they're sitting on whatever they found because we pretty much didn't hear anything about the search of the truck. But what happens now? The police know Jeremy had to be involved somehow. He was way too suspicious not to have at least known something. But there was just nothing putting him at the house and no evidence anywhere. Now, in 1998, Jeremy ends up going to jail for some unrelated charges. Surprise, surprise. And police are at a loss. But Nine months after the, the disappearance, police received two tips that led them to where? Walton County Lake. Walton County, sound familiar? Police searched the lake for about three days, but they came up empty-handed. In 2001, a group from Texas took some cadaver dogs down to an area of suspicion and apparently got multiple hits in this area. And when they started to excavate it, they found an engine block with a rope tied to it. Now, that's incredibly troubling because that is obviously something that you could use to weigh down a body if it was tied to it. But when the FBI came with their dogs, they apparently didn't hit on anything in that area. So, who knows? Now, there have been hundreds and hundreds of searches for Kimberly, and supposedly police have said they have a few other suspects and persons of interest in the case. But none that they have announced publicly besides Jeremy Anderson. So, I don't know if they just have ideas about who could be involved, but don't have any real information on these people, or maybe they just don't have much at all um, in just theories. So, who knows? There's just a lot of, again, confusing and frustrating information in this case. Or should I say lack of information. I'm sure it's even more frustrating for investigators. And I'm sad to say this is actually the conclusion of the case for now. I do have a happy note to end on. In 2019... The Walton County Police Department finally steps up and says that they are going to look into the case. As they should have a long time ago, but it's clear they never did. They never considered that in their jurisdiction, never considered to be involved. However, I will point out that it's a little ironic that, and suspicious, (laughs) that they decided to look into the case after... Jeremy's dad, the Walton County detective, retired. 
So I say that's suspicious. I say maybe Jeremy's dad wouldn't let them look into it, wouldn't let them even think about it. But maybe other people in the department had theories and had concerns that they needed to look into it. And now that Jeremy's dad's out of the picture, this gives them the opportunity. So, fingers crossed, something will come of it. Um, I'm sure with 2020, their hands were a little more tied than usual. But hopefully, hopefully they find something. Hopefully they can get some answers, no matter, I don't know, any answers at this point, you know. And if you know anything, you know, I'm based in Alabama, if A lot of my listeners are from Alabama and travel to Florida frequently. And some people I know even live in Florida. So if you know of anything, anything at all, anything that could be suspicious, um, definitely do what you can to get your information to police. I do have a couple of ways you can do that. Um, Crime Stoppers is an anonymous platform where you can reach out. Again, anonymously and put the information you need. I believe you can just either call in. There's a number for Crime Stoppers. Or there's a website where you can like submit information to. I haven't looked into that personally. But it's real easy and again, anonymous. Which I'm sure most people want to be. But, or you can call um, 334-493-4511. That is the number to the OP Alabama Police Department. Now, sadly, I have to report that Kenny has since passed away. So he had to pass not knowing what happened to his daughter. And that just breaks my heart beyond belief. And even more tragic news for this poor family. Poor Kristen, um, she lost her sister. She then lost her father, as I mentioned. And then later, she lost her husband, obviously not Jeremy, related to cancer. That poor, poor family just has experienced so much loss and the heartbreak most of us don't have to feel and can't understand, but my heart just goes out to them and it, and it breaks for them because I just can't imagine going through one tragedy and then it, it's almost just like loss after loss. So if you're a praying person and I hope that you are, please pray for this family. Pray for the Walton County Police Department that they find answers for them. But guys, that is it. That is it for this case. And I am so sorry to everyone that does not like cases that don't have a conclusion. (laughs) So, apologize. I hope you liked the episode anyways. It was very interesting and it probably made you mad and I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize, but cuz I'm right there, I'm right there with you. I'm happy that the Walton County Sheriff's Department is looking into this. That's the only hope we can have here. And I will share some pictures of Kimberly Raymer on the podcast Instagram when I share um this week's episode post. So keep an eye out for that and um I know that maybe you know, after all these years, she may not be with us anymore, but that hope is still alive. You know, there's zero answers here. There's no evidence though showing that she's passed. And so we can only hope that she is found one way or the other. And we just want answers for this family. And I'm hoping that if you guys can share 
um, the podcast Instagram post that other people will see it. Other people will see her face and her name and then maybe some um, information or memories from people that might have been around at that time could pop back up and maybe they can provide tips or insight as to what could have happened to her. And who knows? Maybe somebody will come forward. So that's my hope. That's my prayer for this episode and in this family and this poor Kimberly. I just pray that answers are are found because this one is is tough because we all think we know who did it and that's possible. It's that it could be Jeremy, one hundred percent. And I mean, I don't think that it's anybody else or any other scenario, personally. But I've also heard theories that maybe it's still the boyfriend. Yeah, he had an alibi, but so did Jeremy. <laughs> they only looked into him, into him further because he was acting weird. And he was around the family that saw him acting weird. So, could be the boyfriend. Could be the boyfriend's ex-wife. You know? Maybe she went a little psycho and killed her. You know? But, I'm not going to rule that out. That's possible. So, I would love to know your thoughts. I would love to know if you have any other theories. Was it Jeremy? Was it somebody else? Was it Jeremy's brother with the kid that helped? Like, was it his friends that helped? Who knows? I, I don't think it's a one-man job. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth. I think there was too many friends that were willing to help this dude. I think that's kind of weird. But let me know your thoughts. And if you know anything, you can message me. I don't know. I just want to find answers for this family. And I hope that you do too. And help spread the word about Kimberly. It's been so long and this needs to be put to rest and this needs answers. And I've said that too many times. So without further ado, that's it for me, guys. I hope you all have a great couple of weeks. And if you have any case suggestions for me, please reach out to me and let me know. Otherwise, stay safe out there. See you guys back here in two weeks. Bye, guys.